If you'll please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And again, we're celebrating uh, Reformation Sunday, and uh, for us, it's a a time where, again, we recognize uh, those that have gone before us, and it's a question of why you're sitting here in a Protestant church and not a Catholic church. And so the Reformation is a time where, again, we celebrate uh, what's commonly referred to back with Luther is where he nailed the 95 theses uh, to the Wittenberg door um, for a debate about some of the issues that were going on in the Catholic Church. And again, it didn't start off to, to make uh, issues so bad in the Catholic Church that it was to split, but it ended up splitting And it's the reason why we are called protesters to this day, because there are some issues within the Catholic Church of which we take accord. And one of them being sola scriptura, that it's scripture alone, and we'll um, unpack that a little bit today. Um, But it's also a a time, and it's part of the reason why I wear this robe on Reformation Sunday and a couple other times, okay? It's it's not something that we do normally, but it was, uh, it's called a Geneva robe, and it's, uh, it's to protect the man, it's to cover the man. And so the idea is that you would see not the preacher and kind of uh, judge me, but that you would see only God and his word preached. And so that's the desire is that you would see not the man, but that you would hear the words preached specifically from Scripture this morning, from God to you. And that's the understanding. That's what we hope for. That's what we long for. So as we kind of open that up, uh, let me ask a question, a very hard question maybe, and maybe an easy question. What are you willing to die for? So if it came to it and someone said, if you came to this situation, what would you be willing to die for? And I think a lot of us would say, well, we would die for our children if it came down to it. If it was us or them, we we would take the hit. Many of us would say that for our spouses. Many of us would say that for freedom. You know, I would die for freedom. I might die for my country. I might die for the helpless. But would you die for a doctrine? Would you die to make sure that it's in Scripture, in Scripture alone, that we have our belief? See, sometimes I think that's harder I think it's harder because if we're honest, sometimes we struggle with even coming to church if it means that we can't go to SeaWorld or Disney World or Universal or the beach. Would we be willing to die for the Scripture? 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, hear the word of the Lord. For all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, as we come into your presence, Father, we know that Jesus is even now interceding on our behalf. And so, Father, as he requests from you, may He give to us the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of truth, the power of your word. And as he speaks, please change our hearts and our minds so that we might rightly understand the truth that is given to us and apply it and live it out before you in a watching world. 
So answer our prayer. Answer your son this morning. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So each Reformation uh, Sunday through the years, I've kind of highlighted a specific person. Now, this person that I'm going to highlight this morning is known as uh, John Huss. And so John Huss is actually pre-Reformation. And so he was born in the 1300s, supposedly. We're not really exactly sure of the date. We do know the date that he dies. Okay, but John Huss um, is given the name of the goose. And that's why you have the cooked goose. And I'll tell you and kind of explain why. Because Luther uh, was fond of John Huss after he started to read some of his writings and sermons uh, when he was early in his uh, time of being a priest. And so his question was, how could the church kill such a man who spoke so eloquently from the Scripture? And so he's the one who's given the, fo- the following quote, um, a quote that's pretty famous in regards to Reformed circles kind of thing. The goose that had been cooked for defying the Pope is how Luther explained John Huss to his students. Because he came from Goose Town. And so what he did is he narrowed his name from John Goose, that's John Huss. So he is the goose that was cooked for defying the Pope. Now, John Huss was born to peasant parents. And so if you look at um, Goose Town, okay, it's in modern Czechoslovakia, south of Prague. And so he was born to, to peasant parents. And so what he did is he said, I know how I'm going to make better in my life. And so he wanted to join the priesthood. Now, he only did this because he wanted to escape poverty. And this is what he said um, to his parents. I can have a good livelihood. I can have good dress. And I can be esteemed by men. And so he went, and he went to school, and he ends up getting his doctorate, and in the midst of him going for the priesthood, he starts to read the Bible. And as he starts to read the Bible, he defines and and figures out that there's something that he's been missing in his life, and that's Jesus Christ. And so he begins to read the Bible, and he starts to get influenced by people like Wycliffe, uh, who's been around before him, who starts to, to write the Bible into the language of the people, which was unheard of and actually frowned upon by those in, in leadership because they, it was written in Latin, and they said, hey, these people who are the commoners, they're not even worthy to read the Bible. It can't be in their own language unless they read it and really mess it up. It's only for the learned people. It's only for the educated people for us to know and then tell you in the, in the, um, in the pews and in the seats what it is that you should know. So this started to influence him. He started to say, he started asking questions of saying, well, wait a minute. Is the Pope and councils who are the ones who are without error or is it scripture and scripture alone? He began to translate um, the language from the Latin and the Greek and the Hebrew into the common language. So this began to stir things up, but he also started to speak out against indulgences. Because at this point, the Pope was uh, going and he was trying to fight some other people. And so he started to sell indulgences. And we learned last time that indulgences are rights that were given from the Pope ultimately to say you can get out of purgatory so that you can go to heaven if you give the right amount of money. Now, this was paying for the Pope, but also the king was getting some kickbacks. And so when Huss came out against this to speak against not only the Pope, but against the king, um, he found himself 
in truly hot water. And so what was happening was that he was told to come and, and given a, uh, a, a warning to give an answer for what it is that he believes. And he was told, you will have safe passage. But when he got there, he was thrown into prison. And as he was thrown into prison, many people came and said, recant. Hey, John, they're going to burn you at the stake. Just recant. You don't, you don't believe it, but just recant. And when John Huss, on July 6, 1415, was taken from his prison cell and he was taken to the church in his priestly robes and then he was ripped. Um, his robes were ripped and taken and removed from him and told to recant one more time lest he would die at the burning of the stake. At which point he says, it's to God that I give my life. God, please forgive my enemies. So John Huss goes on to influence people like Luther who influences the church who influence us sitting in the chairs today. Now, why was sola scriptura such a big deal? Well, the first thing we need to understand is authority and inspiration. Because the biggest question, especially for John Huss and for us, is who, who's in charge? Is it the Pope? Is it church councils? Or is it Scripture? And so we've come to the place where we say, well, it's Scripture that's above all else. Not that the lesser authorities um, are, don't, you don't have to listen to them. I would hope that you would listen to your pastor. I hope that you would listen to what Miss Dixie said, but only as it is according to Scripture. So it becomes sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our rule of faith and practice. And so even though the Pope still can have authority, even though councils can have authority, even though the church can have authority, it's all submissive to the Word of God. And so this is what began to, to, to come about. And so we have to answer the question of, in regards to authority, what is the ultimate authority? And God is the ultimate authority. And God is, since he wrote something to us, his authorship is the ultimate. And so he gave that, and he says he gave it to human authors. Now that's called inspiration. Now what this is not is it's not inspired because we can say people like Robert Frost and his poetry, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach and his music, George Handel, when he wrote the Messiah, says that he could see heaven itself when he wrote the Messiah. So all of that can stuff can say people can be inspired, but that's not why the Bible is there. It's not to inspire you. When it talks about inspiration, it talks about what we read in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so this inspiration is where we find the word breathed out. And it's actually expiration. And there's a big difference. So think about this. If you do not have breath, you cannot speak. So if I was to start speaking and not taking a breath, if I was just to keep preaching and not take a breath and just tell you what's going on and uh, let you know what's going on, and uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to fall dead. So what God does is he expires the word. And he expires the word through the people. Now he does this through the power of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1.21 says this. Second Peter 1.21 for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God is speaking through people. Now, does the Bible go on and explain how the Holy Spirit did this through the individuals? No. But he wants us to understand that God spoke through individuals. Now, there's also things that this kind of means kind of goes away. It's not neo-orthodox. People say, well, it was a neo-orthodox, and this is what it means. When you talk about neo-orthodox understanding of Scripture, these people are people who think, one, that there's no speaking through general revelation. So what, um, what Neil preached earlier when he invoked God's presence about going to the ocean and seeing God's splendor, they would say, eh, that's not really there. And the only way that they feel like there's any kind of revelation is only through Jesus because he is the word of God. And so the Bible is just simply a book that is a witness to Jesus. So they would have um, no problem saying, well, the, the Bible, if it's with error, it doesn't matter because it's just a witness to Jesus. So I can get the same kind of thing from Dr. Seuss. So there's no inspiration within the scripture itself. There's also the dictation theory. The dictation theory is that the the prophets and Paul and others were just sitting there as uh, secretaries. And so God was speaking by the Holy Spirit and saying, take this down. And they were sitting there writing down and they were saying only the words that God said. No, that's not how he did that either. He also didn't do it with limited inspiration. And limited inspiration is where um, they would say that God, yes, he spoke his word, but he allowed the prophets and the people to, to, to write it in their own language. And so they tend to get it wrong. So there's truth that's there found within the scripture, but it's not all there because you have human beings who get it wrong. So what it is that we believe in regards to our faith And this is where we get the plenary verbal inspiration of God, which means the whole Bible is inspired by God at the very word level. Now, what does this mean? So it's not just ideas. It's not just propositions or thoughts. So what people would say, well, it doesn't really matter that Jesus was born of a virgin. It doesn't really matter that Jesus um, died on the cross. It kind of, you just kind of have to interpret that event. So, how would you like to be left unto yourself to interpret the things that are going on in scripture without God telling us what's right? Because if we took the, just take the event of the cross for Herod, he would have seen that as a, as a conquering of over top of the King, right? I killed the the one who was going to replace me for the disciples. They would have been distraught for Caiaphas. He would have just said, Hey, this is one death in the midst of many so that religion can go on the way it's supposed to. So everybody can have a different idea about the events. And yes, God came in and said, the event of the cross is very specific. My son died for your sins to give to you his righteousness so that you might be called the sons and daughters of the king. If we don't get that right, then nothing matters. And so he says to us, it's not just simply giving lip service to the word. It is every word that comes in scripture. Why do we believe that? Jesus said it very, um, very specifically when he was fighting Satan in the midst of his temptations. He was going to very specific words in scripture saying, this is what the word of God says. 
And so we need to make sure that we go and believe and understand that this is something that holds the authority of God himself that he inspired through human authors, but it is the word. And because it is the word, it is both infallible and inerrant. Infallible and inerrant. Now, infallibility, let me give you a definition. Okay, so the definition um, of infallible means this, incapable of making mistakes or being wrong. Incapable of making mistakes or being wrong. Now, I want you to understand, uh, I, I agree with R.C. Sproul on this, that this is a higher term than inerrancy. And he uses the example of saying, I can be inerrant in taking a spelling test. I can get all the words right. And I can be inerrant. But it does not mean that he's infallible. So you can be inerrant and still not be infallible. But you cannot be infallible and not be inerrant. Understand the difference? So in the definition of not being able, incapable of making mistakes or being wrong... What this does is it creates an issue. And it creates an issue for the church in this. Because our stance is this. The Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. The whole. The Bible. The whole thing is there for our rule of faith and practice. It tells you what we're supposed to believe about Jesus and how we're to live our lives. Now listen to something that is very close. And this is what a lot of the, where the churches are going today. And see if you can pick up the difference. The Bible is only infallible when it speaks to faith and practice. Let me give you the difference. The Bible, this is what we say, the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. They say the Bible is only infallible when it speaks to faith and practice. So it means we become the judge over top of the scripture, which means that we become like Thomas Jefferson, one of our forefathers who would take and take his Bible and he would rip out pages that he, that he disagreed with. And sometimes that's how we think of the Bible. But God comes and he says, because he is infallible, because he is unable to make a mistake, we have the whole of Scripture at the very words itself to justify, to take us through the mercy and grace of who Christ is, to give to us the understanding of our faith and our practice. Now, how do we know this? Because of the authority of Jesus Christ. This is the only way that we can get there. What do I mean by that? Because if Jesus is not who he says he is, and if Jesus is not sinless, then what he thinks about the scripture, what he thinks about the story or anything like that, doesn't matter. But because Christ was sinless, he was the only perfect teacher. Because if I, I mean, remember, the scripture tells us very clearly, don't become a teacher because you're going to be held to the higher standard, which means that every time I stand up here, I'm held to a higher standard than you. So if I start preaching something that's not true, I should be damned. That's what the scripture says, because I'm telling you something other than what is true. Now, how do you think I sleep on Saturday night? I am the one speaking forth the truth of God to you. And as I speak the truth, it's because Christ was sinless and perfect. 
because he's sinless and perfect, he's the one that gives all the authority for us to go to the scripture and to trust it, that it is true, it is infallible and inerrant. Now, what do we mean by inerrant? Um, Because I think, um, let me tell you this right up front, most of this stuff I'm getting from John Frame. And if you want to write this down, it's called The Doctrine of the Word of God by John Frame. A lot of people start getting in error because they think that when we talk about the word inerrant, we don't define it correctly. And what they think about inerrant means an idea of precision rather than a lexical meaning of mere truth. Okay? Now here's the definition. Inerrancy means that the Bible makes good on its claims. Now I'm going to unpack this a little bit. So in regards to precision and truth, See, precision and truth overlap in its meaning, but they're not synonymous because it depends on the context. Let's give you an example. So if you're someone in a class and they give you a math problem, they say two plus two equals what? Now, if you're correct, you would say four. If you're incorrect or in error and you gave five or three, or if you thought it was something other than just the two plus two, okay, you thought it was... Two times two, well, that gives you the same number. Uh, thank you. Oh, there you go. Two divided by two. Good job. He's, you know, that's why we go to the silver fox. So just that wisdom. So we have this math problem, and we get this place where, again, it's an error, right, in math. Now, if you ask me, how old are you, Pastor? And I say, well, I'm 53 years old. Well, yes, but that's not precise, I'm actually 53 years, 11 days, and I don't remember when my mom told me I was bored, so I couldn't even give you an accurate number anyways in hours and minutes. But we understand, when I say I'm 53, we don't go, well, pastor's wrong. He's in error. Because there's a difference between precision and truth. Am I 53 years old? Yes. True. Do I have to become so precise in order for us to say it's true? No. Well, it's the same thing in regards to trying to identify error, errors. And so if you were to say the Bible is, has errors or it contains errors, you start having to ask the question, well, how do, you requ- how do you figure that out? How do you know what errors are? See, it requires some understanding of linguistic context, and that, that in turn requires to have an understanding of cultural context. What do I mean by that? Because you live in this. You understand this. When I say, what kind of Coke do you want? You understand. I'm asking for some of you, what kind of soda do you want? What, do you, what kind of pop do you want for some of you? But here in the South, you say, well, what kind of Coke do you want? Well, I don't want Coke. I want Dr. Pepper. Well, you've answered my question. It's not just Coke products. It includes Pepsi. It includes Mountain Dew. It includes all that. We just say, what kind of Coke do you want? It's the same kind of thing as, hey, can you pass me the Kleenex? It's a tissue. It's not Kleenex. But we can say Kleenex, and we understand what the person's saying. Oh, he wants the tissues. Now, I understand that ticks off puffs. I understand what kind of Coke do you want ticks off Pepsi. But in our culture, in our linguistic understanding, this is what we mean, and we understand it. And it's the same thing in regards to inerrancy. I hope you understand that. Because when it says in the Scripture that is the grapha, 
The word there, always, listen, always for the Jewish mind means holy scripture. All scripture, the grapha, meant something very specific. It's not just writing's big picture. It was the holy scripture given by God was God-breathed, expired so that we might understand it to be true. And when that happens, we understand that the Bible itself is true. It is sufficient precision. Listen to Frame's quote. He says, in Scripture, God intends to speak to everybody. To do that most efficiently, he, through the human writers, engages in all shortcuts that we commonly use among ourselves to facilitate conversation, imprecisions, metaphors, hyperbole, parables, etc. Not all these can vary literal truth or truth with a precision expected in specialized contexts, but they all convey truth. And in the Bible, there is no reason to charge them with error. So we have to make sure that we get the distinction between precision and inerrancy. Because when we talk about the Bible, again, we have to understand language and the culture of the people and the original characters. That's why when we talk about hermeneutics, the defining of the word of God, we say something very specific in this church. We say you ask the question of who is the the scripture written about? Who is the scripture written to? And then how does it apply to me? Only then do we begin to grasp and understand the true intent of what the Scripture was supposed to tell to us. So this is a big deal. It's becoming a bigger deal. Because there are churches who would say that they are evangelical churches that believe in Jesus Christ who would deny the truth and the authority of the Scripture. And when we become the judge of Scripture... Just like the Pope, we're in trouble. So we continue to fight the fight. And I would say this is a hill to die on. When people begin to strip away that Scripture and Scripture alone is the only authority for our faith and practice, that is a hill we cannot give up. It's not. It's our foundation for everything because if you start getting to the place where you say, I believe this about the Bible, but not this, then the whole thing is thrown out. Can't have it both ways. Scripture and Scripture alone. I'm going to leave you with this passage from Psalm 19, and I think this is a passage um, that everyone, I think you can even memorize this one. And I'll tell you this. I'll tell you how important this was because usually I have a very detailed um, thing. But I, for some reason this week, I couldn't open up the Proclaim. Now, I think that's not by accident. I think this is so important that Satan tries to deceive us in every opportunity that we have. So we go to the Word of God to hear this. And I want you to look at Psalm 19. Okay, if you don't do it now, please do it later. The first six verses talk about the heavens and the earth, um, talk about who God is. It, it says of his greatness. It says of his mercy. But then go to verse 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. For this is the commandment of the Lord that is pure. 
for it enlightens the eyes, and the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true, and the righteous, they're all together. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. For moreover by them is your servant worn, in keeping them there is great reward. So maybe you haven't been reading your scripture lately, and you know where I'm at. Quit beating yourself up. Start today. Start today. There's reading packets out there. There are a ton on the internet that you can go to. Find someone to hold you accountable, to call you into question. Have someone to discuss it with you. Do whatever you need to do to get back into the Word, but understand that it is your rule of faith and practice. And it is the foundation upon which everything else that we hold true to be found in. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are so grateful for that cloud of witnesses that has gone before us, Lord. And we know from beginning of time, Lord, that you created, and by your word, you have put people into place. And Lord, we know, Lord, even what we read from Psalm 46 this morning, Lord, we read it, and we said it tongue-in-cheek for a lot of us. But Lord, if we believe that we were seeing mountains be thrown into the ocean, if we were to see things in the world go awry as you can, would we really be secure in knowing that you are the God who is in control? Or do we cry out and say, what the heck is going on? But Father, you have told us, you have shown us, you have given us your word. You have spoken to us the truth that you are a God who is sovereign. You're in control and you're good. And you control everything, even that which we would count as evil. And so, Father, we do thank you for those that have stood the faith who gave their lives, whether it be through drowning, whether it be through imprisonment for life, whether it be burning at the stake, those who would not give up the truths that we stand upon. And Father, I know that we are still one generation away from apostasy. And so the question in the world and our children and our grandchildren look to us and say, will we stand the post Will we stand with the truth? And so, Father, may it be said of us as we continue to go into your world to continually reform, to bring about change so that others might know who Christ is, but they know it through the word of God given to us. So, Father, please allow it to make deep roots so that we might be found faithful. For we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And we pray it in the power of the resurrection that you gave through the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.